You're listening to the Ferocious Teachers Podcast, a listening experience for educators who are dedicated to the improvement of education and ourselves. I'm Rachel Bell, founder and facilitator of Ferocious Teachers. Visit us at ferociousteachers.com. Let's stop focusing on what education has been and open our minds to what education can be. Here we go. Do you have any strategies or like maybe systems that you have in place to just ease the mental demand? I've heard like all these studies coming out in the last few years that say teachers make more minute by minute decisions than brain surgeons. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And just like the dis- decision fatigue, I think is one of the most overwhelming parts of the job. Is there anything that you found or that you do maybe as a habit that you feel like really relieves that? Well, I'll try to, I'll try to, you know, I mean, it might be a shot in the dark. If it's not what you're looking for, let me know. And then I might be able to to get a better idea. Um, I think reducing direct instruction um, and creating a system where you can work individually with kids as much as possible is one way to really decrease that stress of minute by minute having to make these calls. Um, Because I think when you're doing direct instruction, I I think some direct instruction is inevitable, but when you're doing a direct instruction, um, you're essentially doing something in front of everyone that has to be tailor-made to each person individually. And the the nuances of tailor-making that along with classroom management, coverage. How do you know they're getting it? Um, it's very difficult. I, I, I just think, and, and especially with remote learning, again, um, there has to be something more individualized mm-hmm. so that troubleshooting can be done with the student. And that decreases the burden of having to make all these brain surgeon type of decisions, right? So like, um, if I'm deciding for you, I have to bear the responsibility of not only you doing it, but doing it well, and then also making sure that I made the right call. But if you and I are able to troubleshoot something, you have a stake in it, you can monitor it as well. Mm-hmm. And then I can actually just check back with you and circle back because you're already in, like I've already gotten your buy-in. So I don't have to take the burden of having to make another call. Um, I think it, it's very difficult to do, right? Like full disclosure. I think I, I, I truly believe you can tell the, the more direct instructing that is going on, the more insecure or uncertain a teacher is, right? Because that's, you know, we, we, we're, we don't have much power, so we cling to whatever little we have. And so direct instruction and I know that, you know, it's, I, I, I get it, right? If you got to, if you got to go over Newton's laws of, of thermodynamics, that's just stuff. I, I, I fully understand that. And again, I, I don't know how this looks in other disciplinary settings. Like, I don't know how it looks in math fully. I don't know how it looks in, um, you know, in another content-based setting. But overall, it seems like the stress of having to make those real-time decisions 
And then not just having to make them, but having to follow through. Progress monitor. How do you know it's working? How do we redefine? I've, I have found that being able to um, create or build time in so that I can communicate with students about where, where we are and where we need to be uh, has helped out tremendously in that regard. There's still like these snap decisions that have to be made and it's just so unbelievably stressful. But when it comes to work, um, I'm leveraging my relationships with kids so that they can take some of that burden on as well. Cause I, I just, I look at teachers and, and I, even just talking to kids, um, you, I find a lot of kids just saying, you know, so-and-so is a really nice teacher. They're a nice person, but they just, they keep on talking it's too much. Yeah, no, I, and you know, this is high end kids, low end kids, struggling kids, you know, they're just like, those are the really, she's a nice lady, but she just doesn't shut up. <laughs> and I mean, and, and it's, it's, I've noticed it over the last couple of years that on some level, um, the talk, what, it's not that they don't want any communication from teachers, but they want something that's meaningful to them. So like, if I'm just blasting instructions to the group, I get, I can, I get a little bit of a window to do that. But if that's my MO day in and day out, and I'm not tailor making that to them, um, they're, they're, they're more likely to tune out. Because, again, remote learning has just put the onus back on them anyway. And for some kids, it's given them a level of power where they're like, well, I tuned you out in remote learning. I can tune you out now. So I've got to, I've got to find a way to, you know, hey. Um, what is it that we can do to kind of, to, to take care of this? Uh, what, what, what are you on the hook for? Right. Or like, look, man, what do you think you can do? You, we sometimes, and I, I hate to say it, sometimes it comes down to let's make a deal. Right. So like there's 30 questions. Um, what do you, what, what can we work with? Like, I want you to do, I want you to do 20. What do you think? Uh, maybe I can do 12. Okay. These 12, I want you to do. Can you handle that? Okay. All right. Then, then we're all good. Right. So now obviously if they don't do it, then I got to come back and say, look, man, we can do this one of two ways. Either I'm going to do it for you or you're going to take some ownership here. Like, what do you want? Um, and I think talking to them in that way has really helped out a lot. It, it requires two things though. First, um, again, you got to know your content and you got to know where those touch points are. What can you negotiate on? And I've been honest with kids sometimes like I can't negotiate, like I've got to have you do I can negotiate elsewhere, but like this one, you got, okay, that's good, right? Um, so you got to know your content. Um, you got to have that communication with them. You have to speak to them in such a way that like, obviously they're not going to take advantage of it, but they also know that like, look, I'm the best you got. Like, you're not going to get this from anyone else. So don't screw me on it. Like I'm trusting you. So you've got to be able to develop that level of rapport uh, with them in a meaningful way. And that's where that personal aspect becomes critical. Like I have to know who you are in order to, in order to broker a deal with you. Because your deal is going to be different than the other kid's deal. Who's going to be different than that kid? So like they, you know, they're like, you do this with everyone. I'm like, yeah, but it looks different with everyone, mm -hmm. right? Like with, with, with this kid, I'm going to be able to do 12. With another kid, I can push. I, with another kid, maybe I can only do eight, right? You know, so-and-so's mother is dying of cancer. Maybe we're only going to do five, right? Because like, they have a cancer patient at all. So like the reality is 
yeah, it, it looks, it, I, I cut deals with everyone, but the deals themselves are fundamentally different. And then the last thing that needs to be done, you can't do this in addition to out of class work. So like whenever we do, I have to accept as a teacher that I'm probably going to have to punt on speed. And, and I know that's something that we've talked about, but I think, you know, I get, there's so many standards that I have to cover. There's so little time that I have. There's so many pullouts that I got to deal with that I just got to plow drive through and we get, we have to do this. Um, I hear it and it's not easy, but in order for this to work, I, you can do that, but you're going to take on so much water that the boat's going to sink. This is my way of not taking on water. And, you know, sometimes we just have, we have the courage during, during remote learning to be able to say, look, we just didn't get to it. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and, and that dialogue hopefully is something that, and I'm not using that as a cap. I'm not saying that that's our cover for everything, but like, let's just be forthright and honest. As human beings, sometimes we don't have a great quarter. Sometimes businesses don't meet the projections, right? And, and we got to go back and figure out what's going on there. But I think we have to be, I, I could never understand everything in our profession is imperfect. <laughs> Why do we suddenly have to become almost divine-like figures when it comes to coverage of material? Right. Like, you know, and again, looking at it from my point of view, um, is it really, you know, is it really necessary to go from Plato to NATO and cover all 45 chapters in the book? Like, is that really needed? Um, because, you know, the reality is all of our kids are coming in at different points. And, you know, if, if you've got a kid that reads at a second grade level and they're in a seventh or eighth grade classroom, how do you I know you got to cover your standards, but. They're not going to get, I'm not trying to be judgmental or rude, but the kid that's at a second grade level ain't going to get 45 chapters in that book, no matter what you do, because that book is written beyond that. So like, we have to accept the fact that this is the reality in which we live. And part of that reality means maybe what I have to do is I'm not going to get to everything. And and I've got to be okay with that. Um, so, you know, I, I'm I'm hoping that we can kind of say that, I'm going to punt speed for depth, for connection, and for responsibility. So, like, I don't, I, I'm getting to the point where when we do work in class, I'm, you know, of course, you, you might need to work on it outside of class. I don't know. But, like, for two weeks or for three weeks or for however long, this is all we're doing. Mm -hmm. You come in, you, you get your stuff, you get, you know, moved wherever the hell you want to. You got to work. I'm not going to mess. I'm, I'm not teaching you anything new. I'm not doing any direct instruction. It's your work time. You want to come late to class? That's your time that you're waiting. I don't, I don't care, right? You show up 45 minutes late, you block the day of work because I'm not doing anything. All I'm doing is motoring around the room or pulling kids to conference. Or maybe I'm in the hallway. Um, you know, it's, it really, it, it builds that level of trust with the kids, that community. And it's one less thing that I have to make snap decisions about. Um, we don't know what their workplace setting is going to look like, right? We have no idea what jobs will be available to them. But the idea of being your own project manager is a life skill wherever you are, right? Like you're not even, even if you are a bagger at a grocery store, 
you're not going to have someone standing over you your entire shift telling you put the eggs on the you know, put the eggs on top uh put the cans on the it's just not going to happen so they need to kind of project be their own project manager like how am i going to get this done you know what's your plan so when i talk to kids about this i'm not on my conferences if when they're going right they're really about not even five minutes like we're just checking in like hey man i, I and and i've looked over their work so like i can speak honestly look man you said you'd get to number 15 yesterday you're on number three like what's now we need to like what's going on and so yeah i know i, I had wrestling last night or i had course last night I, I just i'm not getting enough sleep all right cool man but like tell me what because look just tell me what i need to expect that's it right you know don't don't jerk me around just be honest with me don't don't give me a teacher answer give me just a straight up answer okay tonight i can't do it but i promise over the weekend i'm going to turn up okay cool then i'll check back with you monday and i'm not going to fuck with you like you okay that's cool mm -hmm. i i do think that there are two there are a lot of teachers that are students experience who are scared and they project that fear onto them that comes out in animosity that comes out in control that comes out in like demonizing oh my god you didn't get this done like you know i, I don't understand what's wrong with you and like that hostility even if you're a well-adjusted child that hostility doesn't help if you're a maladjusted child that's all you're used to so like we've got to you know we've got to stop that we, we, we've got to create a culture where like i'm i'm not part of because we want to say to kids right every teacher wants to say don't judge me i'm not like your previous teachers so if we're going to say that then we have to actually like not duplicate those bad habits right like <laughs> you you can't say that and then say um, i'm going to capitulate so if you want to be if you if you really want to be that teacher you have to then be able to say look man i gotta trust you and like you know and i i sometimes tell my kids i hold my breath when i click on your google doc because like i'm i'm gonna be i know i'm gonna be disappointed but i gotta trust you and i think that does carry a little bit of weight and you know if it doesn't work out that becomes our talking point so like you know when the parents, you know, how come this didn't get there? I, I'm wondering the same thing, right? Like we had an agreement. Um, I thought they were gonna honor that agreement. It's probably damaged the trust to create fur further agreements. That kind of discussion for a parent is much better than I gave it and they didn't do it. Mm -hmm. So I, I, you know, if, if, if the original question was, what is something that can be done structurally to reduce the intense amount of pressure that we have to take on we have to look at the work that we're giving kids and how can we create a structure where it isn't so demanding on us like i i just i don't get it and I don't think I, across the board many people are doing that, and I certainly know in special ed, it's oh not that way. And I, I and it's like I'm, I'm kind of, I'm really excited about that idea. And I'm like, on the one hand, I think it might be harder for a lot of my kids with multiple disabilities going on who need those prompts a lot for almost everything. But then at the same time, I'm like, there is such a huge focus on building independence, and we are 
not helping that situation if we're handing them everything constantly. So I'm going to start gradually building this. Yeah. And, and I, 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 I think one thing that really helps, um, and I don't know how it's going to look in your setting, but either using assistive technology or using some type of mechanism. I've always felt that with kids that struggle with that, you know, I know the, the term now is the executive functioning thing. Um, almost breaking things down into a small checklist every day. Mm -hmm. And then just going back to that. With my students, it, it, at, the, at, at every table, there's just a tiny little piece of paper. Did you do this today? Right? Just boom, 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 boom. That's it. And it's just down the line, you know? Um, and then just being able to, you know, in, in the conference for me, I just point to it at the table, like what's going on? Um, there's, I don't, again, I don't know how that's going to look with you because of where you are, but I'm, I'm thinking that there's got to be a way, there's got to be a way, right? They have a bird, they have a worm's eye view of everything. They can't see past the next minute. They can't envision anything beyond. But if you're able to say to them, um, we need to get to this point, we're here, this is how we're going to get here. And you show them step by step what they need to do to get to that point. I think that's the way that we can allow them to take ownership, to show them that we're, we're helping them, but we're not doing it for them. Mm -hmm. But infinitely more important, we bring them into the process. Um, and, and, and that's what has been missing. And I just find, I, I would think that in special education, this would have been there before anywhere else, right? Because um, that's all special ed teachers do. But I think part of either the demands that have been put on sped teachers, uh, the need to be like the one that's going to catch these students up. Um, and then also the fact that it, it has become the dumping ground, but it has also become the burnout center. All teaching is burnout. I think you can multiply by 50% more the burnout rate in special education cases. So you have younger and younger teachers, more inexperienced, more inexperienced teachers in a setting that demands A, experience, but also B, willing to let control go. Hmm. Um, that's where I think we can probably see uh, something changing in the way we do things. And, and you're absolutely right, because there's a very good chance that the teacher that does this is, is going to be like the only teacher that does it in the life of a kid, right? They're going to be exposed to eight different teachers a day, seven of which are not doing this. So I think there's an added, there, there's, there's an opportunity there for us to kind of see, okay, we can try something else. Like, and I think kids will be able to take up on that. So I, for me, that's, that's kind of the way that I, I would be able or that I would look at how do you, what is, what is something that is in your structure that you could do that could possibly decrease the, the heavy amount of burden regarding decision making? That honestly is really one of the most important discussions and things to think about for me because the mental 
load is honestly what I think I'm most afraid of in teaching. It's mm-hmm. like not the amount of work, you know, not the amount of hours spent during the day. And, and I'll give you an example. It's like one particularly rough day where it was like just fire after fire you to put out, um, you know, assistants come back in my classroom and I'm like, good morning. And I'm like, this is at the end of the day. And I'm like, I can have a good sense of humor about those things and laugh at myself. But it's like more and more that sort of thing kept happening. And I'm like, I felt like I was losing my mind. So that freaked me out more than anything. But I think this is a completely new perspective that we really can do a lot. And I mean, I'm, I am in special ed, but I'm more of like the academic side of special ed too, where a lot of my students can really handle and really benefit from a model like that. And the yeah. ones who can't can do a more supported version, I think. Absolutely. And, and I, I, I think that you, if you set this upright, the kids that can go on their own, they go on their own. The kids that need that direct instruction, it's different. It's different when you're doing direct instruction with 100% of the group, as opposed to 33% of the group, right? Like if you're doing direct instruction with 33% of the group over 100, you've changed the dynamics of direct instruction. It's not really traditional direct instruction anymore. It's more individualized intervention. No one is saying individualized intervention is wrong. I just don't think individualized intervention can happen when you're in front of a 100% of the group. So, I, I, it, it, you know, even if, even if someone counters back, because I've had teachers say, well, that's not going to work with all my kids. Yeah, you're right. I don't think it does. And it doesn't work with 100% of my kids. Mm-hmm. But I've reduced the odds significantly because now I can, if, you know, again, in a classroom of 26 kids, it is different if I'm standing up doing direct instruction for all 26 in the same way as opposed to just doing it for six. If I'm doing direct instruction for six kids, it's seminar work. It's not direct instruction, right? We can have conversations. We can, I can target, hey, um, I need you to look for this. I need you to look for this. I need you to look for this, right? I can now parcel that out. And maybe I could even create a setting where, all right, I'm going to lead you for like five or seven minutes. Then I'm going to need you to go five or, you know, I'm going to need you to pair up in small groups. You're going to do five on your own. In the time that they're working on their own, now I can go to everyone else. So um, it is, it's a way in which you're giving them more of the, you're still owning a lot of it, right? I, you know, it, you're still going to have an incredible amount of work to do. This isn't like, you know, you're on your computer at the front of the room and they're, it's not like that. Mm-hmm. But what you're doing is you're getting them to take some of that ownership and a little bit of the, of the burden off of you. And it's allowing you to hone in on what you need to do. Yeah, I, I've had situations where, and no joke, kids are working on their own. And one kid has said, I know you got to work with a bunch of other kids. Can I just sit next to you? I, I'll work, but I need you. To, yes. Right? That's what that kid needs. I need to be able to point like, so while I'm working with these six kids, I'm going over to this computer, get that done. That's again, that's heavy work, but it's, it's more effective work. Um, and, and I, I don't think, and I think you're absolutely right. If you're not afraid of the work, I, I think that's 50% of the battle right there. But the problem is if you're doing all of it, even if you're not afraid of it, the human capacity has a finite level. And I think that's exactly what you are articulating 
it's only a matter of time. You can run on the treadmill at the highest speed for like only a certain amount of time. It's one thing to run at like speed 15 for one minute. You're doing something else when you're talking about 20 minutes. No one's going to be able, the body's going to give out. And I think that's part of the reason why, you know, teachers respond to that giving out in different ways. They withdraw, they become cynical or craven, uh, they become angry, they quit. All of this is rooted in the fact that on some level, I, I have yet to, I have yet to see someone leave the profession because they were misinformed about teaching, right? You know, no, no one says, I didn't know I'd be working with kids, right? I mean, it is what it is. People leave the profession because it's too demanding. And what I'm, what I, what I have come to the realization is that you are not going to get help externally. Like, that's just a fact. And the reason why you're not going to get help externally is because probably everyone else around you, leadership included, is struggling with this reality. It's just a different reality. So I didn't get support from my my building principal. I didn't get support from my curriculum. Yes, full disclosure, you're not going to. So we need to recognize what are we going to do in the little enclave that we have in our in our classrooms, in our settings, what can we leverage there? What can we do there that can bring them in, minimize the damage being done to me? Damage is going to be done. The storm is coming. You're not going to avoid it. The hurricane is, you are right in the path of the hurricane. But what am I going to do to minimize and create a sustainable path where I can get through that? Because if you just stand in front of the hurricane, and that's what, and I think that's what teachers do when they become, when they just the only direct instruction of the path. When you are doing everything, one hurricane after another is going to beat you down. You might outlive three hurricanes, you ain't going to outlive all of them because they, they keep coming every day. Sometimes they come one on top of another. Sometimes there's like three in one moment. And I, when you talk about the fires that you're putting out, um, they will still be there. I don't want it to be that like my approach means that, you know, I, I sometimes come home and I'm like, Jesus, if I didn't have this approach, what else could have gone wrong today? Like it was hell anyway. Um, if I didn't have them doing work on their holy shit. And that could be, you know, some kid flipping out in class. That could be a fight in the hallway. That could be, we don't know. So the fires are still going to be there. But you've got, you're saving, you're saving the, the water and directing it where it needs to be instead of just spraying it everywhere. Because the more you spray it everywhere, it's going to spread. You're not doing anything but putting accelerant on the fire, not water on it. So I, 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 you know, I just, but to do this means what it involves the step that you're taking, which is, okay, I like it. How am I going to make it work? And I think that's very difficult for teachers because teachers have been told that there's this one approach or there's this top down or this corporate element to it. And this is the most non-corporate profession there is because 
you're not going to, and again, there is science, there are scientific and data points that are involved, but it is artistry. It's not replication. It's not being able to say, here's the unit plan or here's the Google Doc, do this and it's done. It's not it. But I don't know whether teachers are being told or have the courage to be able to say, like, I'm going to be an artist. And we've talked about this, right? You know, that's where the difference between hacks and artists. And I think if the teacher comes, if a teacher is, is embracing a hack philosophy, the, the burnout, it's just a matter of time. And I think it's um, hard, especially like you were saying earlier, that for newer teachers, it's like we want to do so well. And we're getting, so, people are so quick to give you advice too in the first few years of teaching. And when you're in that stage where you're trying to do well and so much is coming at you, it's even taking, even sorting out all the advice into this advice is decent. This advice is bad. This advice might be fine, but it's not for me. This advice might be fine, but not for the student. This might, advice might be fine for me and the student, but not in the situation. All of that's hard, let alone saying, okay, what I have been doing and what I've been told to do is not working. It's not sustainable. And I know I, I've made, look, I'm proud of like a lot of the progress I've made with these kids. And that's why I keep believing in this field but I know it's not sustainable the way I've been doing it. So I have to really work the summer and into the school year and beyond at crafting something that is more sustainable. Yeah. I, and and I, it's very difficult. Think about the courage that's just in that statement, right? Just in just what you said, there are layers and layers upon courage to be able a, a powerful reflection that says, um, I need, I, I need to not only do more, but I have to do something in a different way. It's going to challenge what I previously believed in. I need to ideate and prototype something. Um, you've shown a great deal of empathy in listening to yourself. Part of where, part of where I think, and, and in the response that I just heard from you that, that I see you at, but I think other teachers need to be at is that there is no fixing this. There is no fix. If there was a fix, we would have figured it out long ago. This is a marathon. It is not a sprint. And teachers who, and uh, the advice thing is exactly right. And I think part of that, it comes from a culture of working with younger teachers that either explicitly or implicitly suggests all younger teachers can be fixed just do this, just try this, just the idea of one item being able to fix everything is, it's setting, it's setting people up for failure. We can even see this, we can even see this in mental health, right? Or in the idea of working with people that have been through traumatic experiences, right? Um, just do this. If someone has been the victim of abuse or violence or assault. I'm not sure there's any such thing that you could say, just do this. Because the brain doesn't operate that way. The soul doesn't operate that way. When somebody has imprinted something horrible upon you, you never, you know, you can push it off to the side and, and perhaps repress it, but that's certainly not fixing it. Um, I think we need to take, and, and let's, being a first or second year teacher, 
I hate to say it, but you've been violated. <laughs> and I, I, I don't, I'm not, I don't want it to be like I'm trivializing no. anything like that, but let's be completely honest. First and second year teachers, you, you've been violated in the worst way because every single day you trusted in a system that has, that is broken, mm-hmm. let you down. You, you know, it, it's not, I, I, I'm not equating it to, to, anything of of a sexual violent nature but the idea of being violated means i would i trusted something or someone and advantage was taken and nothing was replenished or restored from that which is taken that is a first or second year teacher everywhere there uh, even if you love the profession younger teachers are subject to more violations of trust, of faith, of belief, of confidence. And there's nothing we're doing to help restore that. And part of that is because we're not taking a trauma-informed approach in working with young teachers, in working with, we probably should be doing this with any teacher, but definitely with young teachers, we don't look at it like that. We don't look at it as in a trauma-informed lens. We don't, I, and again, if I'm wrong, I, I'm hoping, you know, please do correct me and, and it's fine because I'm wrong on just about everything, but I'm not sure that there has been any institutional setup to allow first year teachers and second year teachers uh, or younger teachers within the first four years to consistently unpack and untangle the hurt, the pain, the frustration they feel. I you you could have the best leader possible, but there's no structure for that. You get evaluated, you get informally evaluated, you get your formal, and that's it. If it's on the paper and you've got a three or four, then you must be okay. You know, and 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 there's no there's no structural setup to unpack and untangle the hurt that teachers are going through. So I've what is it that, that way? But that is so true, and I think so it what, makes it, it's such a culture of of reinforcing the idea that you shouldn't ask for help. And and now that you've brought that up, let's take it the next step. What do we find? Research tells us that when victims of violence, when targets of violence do not speak, it becomes worse. If they don't trust the system, if they know nothing will be done. If they feel that they're going to be discredited, they just internalize that hurt and the trauma becomes worse. And that's exactly where teachers are. We're we're not taking, obviously we need to take a trauma-informed perspective when we work with students. We've now come to the realization that that is now needed, right? That our kids come in with buckets and barrels of trauma that we have to be the cable box that unpacks and untangles. But we're also not recognizing that our teachers, how can you ask a teacher to help a child unpack and untangle their trauma when a teacher has experienced professional trauma that has not been unpacked and untangled? Like, how do they have the skill set to do that? How does that work? Right? So that's why you get teachers pushing back. I'm a French teacher. I'm a math teacher. I'm not a social worker. I shouldn't have to do this. I'm not a guidance counselor. And they may have a valid point. They do have a valid point. In a perfect setting, if the system works, they, would, they shouldn't have to do this. 
But the fact that they do only indicates that the system is broken. But they're a part of that system, yeah? So they have not been, they don't know what health looks like. So how can you ask someone that doesn't know what health looks like to go diagnose and replicate good health? It's just, you know, and, and, and I, there, there is no framework. If you're lucky, like you got to draw an inside straight. If you're lucky and you get a principal or a building leader or somebody in the position of administration that takes you under their wing, that's informal. That's not something structural. That's because you were lucky. And the reality is you're not going to get that. And inside straight is like a 0.01% chance of getting that draw. You're, if that's what you have to bank your health on, you're fucked. It's oh. over. Victim blaming. I, I didn't mean the analogy to be so apt, but it seems to be, you know, what did we say? We told women in the 50s and 60s, even up, to, even up to today, we still tell girls, boys will be boys. It's okay. You know, that just, shit just happens. You, you have to, you know, you have to deal with it. Don't cry. Right. We, we tell guys that all the time. Boys don't cry, you know, um, and then they make girls cry. So, you know, it's just uh, it, there there is that old school 1950s madman approach in terms of how we work with our teachers. And we're not doing anything. I mean, the first step that we need, obviously, is we have to cultivate some type of channel of care informally. Then we have to structuralize it. We have to formally create that. I don't even know whether we can get to the first step. Because if you've got administrators that are like, I'm using this as a stepping stone to get somewhere else, they're not going to give a damn about you. They're going to be like, okay, like maybe I'll give you 10 minutes of my time. And then I need you to go to this website. Or I need you to talk to the data coach. Or I need you to talk to this person. Like they're going to pawn you off. Because their long-term vision doesn't involve you. You're like not even on the radar. <laughs> so, you know, and, and again, part of that, right, is that it is so much easier to burn through teachers in their first five years, have them leave, hire someone else at the bottom, repeat the process. It is much more costly for a district to retain someone for 20 some odd years. Oh yeah. And so it is to their advantage. And again, I'm not claiming in any way that this is a deliberate or intentional motive. I could see it as one, but it does benefit the district to have younger teachers who don't know what's awaiting them and who leave voluntarily on their own. Right. I've never even thought about that. I mean, monetarily, financially, it's a it totally advantage. It's part of the reason why you're not going to see. And I don't know if the trend line is is going in the profession where you're going to see teachers last 20, 30 years. Because there is there, you know, if a teacher is starting today in 2020, the demands that are being put on teachers are so, you know, and I would say on younger teachers in particular, because, right, younger teachers enter a district and they're tasked with fix the district, 
right? Like we're struggling. You're going to be the leaders of this new, uh, you're going to be the vanguard of the revolution. You're going to be the change that we always wanted. For a first year teacher to hear that, that just creates so many pressures of expectation that you, obviously you're setting them up to fail. And then as the, as the district, you could say, well, they didn't, they weren't quality teachers. It was their fault. That's why they left. So it becomes um, a very, that corporate mentality is there, that, that Enron idea of we're just going to, you know, rank and yank. We're going to take the bottom, the bottom 10% and we're just going to get rid of them. Um, because your bottom 10% in any district of, of any teachers are your younger teachers. Mm-hmm. Not because they're bad, but because you don't really know anything. It's just such a your learning first, curve. Your first year, you think you know everything. If you only get to like your fifth year to realize, I don't even know what I don't know. Mm-hmm. Right? Like I'm so, and that, that's a level that most people don't even get to. Right. Because who wants to who wants to go into an evaluation and say under Danielson's domain four, Yeah, I don't even know what I don't know. Right. Because you're always ta- I mean, you're how do you know the kids learned? How do you know they got the which teacher is going to have the courage to be able to say in their first three or four years? Yeah, I don't know if anyone can really say that. <laughs> I don't know if anyone can really be confident of that. You can say that, I think, when you're at your 20th year or your 23rd year, your 25th year. You, and you, don't, you can say it in a way of not being a jaded veteran. You can say, like, I'm not sure, it's impo- I'm not sure that, that, that standard can be met. I don't even know if you can do All you can do is do the best you can. I don't know whether you can say with absolute 100% certainty that they're going to know and understand and retain that. It's because there's so many variables in the child's life. Their brains are growing. Middle school brains, for example, are in constant flux. We don't know in the growth of that brain whether the content that we taught, whether the learning target was the casualty of such growth, right? You know, um, if, 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 so I, you're not going to get a first, you're not going to get a first year teacher to say that. So I, I, I think there's this, there's this culture of, yeah, I, I hate to say it, but it's almost like a macho culture. Man up, nut up, do what you got to do. Be strong. As you, don't cry. Don't, you know, don't show weakness. This person's a crier. They're a complainer. They're a whiner. Um, we really have this sort of uh, college football Bear Bryant approach to teaching. And it's so, it, it, it's so odd for two reasons. One, we now know that that is detrimental to children. We would never do that to children. We now know the harm that it causes the long-term damage it causes, right? So, so we're told, don't do this to children, and yet the adults are doing it to one another. So the culture that we're trying to teach kids is opposite of the culture of our professional interaction. And then, of course, you get into, if the only interactions I've had professionally are ones filled with hurt and anger, how am I not going to transmit that to a child? So you can begin to kind of see that I don't want to say there's like a conspiracy because that, that implies that there's, that there's some wizard behind the curtain, but it is clear that the structural cultural components of teaching do not allow for the full space of emoting 
that is required in order to be an effective teacher. Very true. And I think it's tied to the shame that then is put on the younger teachers, which then blossoms in the judgment of other people, especially as they, there's always somebody below you. It's like, I'm going to, you know, judge you so that I can cover up my own shame. So then it's a cycle of nobody is asking for help when they need it. Everybody's pretending like things are just great. Because if this first year teacher actually makes it to like their 10th year, the layers of hurt that have been imposed upon them, they're not going to be honest because then that would mean that everything they've been doing is, is a front. It's a lie. So what do they do? They just abuse somebody else. They look at the next first year teacher and they abuse them. So you, you now, and, and of course, right now the administration isn't doing it. We're doing it to each other. So like they don't need to be the bad guy anymore. The culture that they've created, the culture that they've nurtured, we have now internalized. We've been, we've been exposed to so much abuse and violence that that's the only way we understand how to emotionally emote with another person. All we can do, we no longer smile, we smirk. We no longer look for solutions, we look for problems. We no longer assume positive intent, we assume negative intent. And, and it, it, it becomes a very, if you are not able to unpack and untangle this, it does permeate throughout everything. Because then you start looking at kids. It's not that you could have done something if you didn't do what I said. It's not what could I do to make this assignment better. It's what you didn't do to get it done. So you can start seeing, you know, it's very easy to say, oh, that's just a veteran teacher, or they're just burned out. And we've, we've normalized that. We've normalized um, burnout. What we're not doing, though, what are the conditions that are allowing systemic burnout to exist? You know, when was the last time that you had a leader sit you down in a non-adversarial setting and say, tell me a story about when you felt the status in the classroom? Like, that's not, you don't need a PhD or a doctorate or a type 75 to ask that question. Because if you ask any teacher that question, they'll tell you about the time that they thought they were an angel and they turned out to be a devil. They'll tell you about the time that they had the best plan ever only to see it fall apart in 10 minutes. They'll tell you about the time when they bought snacks with their kids only to find that they had their wallet stolen. Mm. They'll tell you about every single, because one thing about teachers, we all have stories to tell. Every single minute in a classroom is a story. And sometimes we just, even at the end of the day, all we think about are the most, are the stories that stuck around the most. We don't think about every single story that we had from the time we entered the building to the time we left it. If, 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 if we would be able to cultivate a culture of empathizing with the other instead of demonizing the other, if, you know, and again, not taking notes, not using it in an evaluation, not tying it into Danielson. Tell me about a time when you felt really alone in a class. Tell me about a time you felt really alone in a staff meeting. Hmm. Tell me a story about when you wanted, tell me, tell me a story about when you were this close to typing up a letter of resignation. They'll tell you about the times that they never would have thought mattered. 
And when you start doing that, I really believe that you can create the cultures that can prompt change. That that's how structural change can actually happen. I'm becoming a firm believer in the idea that structural change can happen if we give space for the other to be seen. So now what we've done is if some administrator or some leader could do that with teachers, think about how powerful that would be with a kid. So now you sit down with a kid anywhere. Tell me about a time when you felt really alone. Tell me about a time when you felt like, when you felt that you were the only person on the planet. Tell me about a time today when you were around with, when you were surrounded by other people, but you felt you were like alone in a crowd. Man, you, you're telling me our kids wouldn't, because again, think about what kids do. They love telling stories. That's all they do. You're not asking them to fill out an interest inventory. You're not asking them to fill out some goddamn scantron. Tell me a story. And you just sit there and listen. You don't interrupt. You don't hijack. Just tell me a story. Tell me a story about when you felt that you were on top of the world, but you realized you were at the bottom of it. Hello. I, you know, I think you could do that really with any age. I do believe that because every kid, the older they get, the more likely they're going to want to bury their stories. But if you create the setting, even for older kids, they're going to want to share because they realize as they get older, no one has ever asked them to share. So they're going to realize how precious it is. So if you can start getting admin or leadership to create the structures that allow stories to be told from their teachers, you can actually spin that off into the classroom. That's what I will never understand. Like if you start modeling and creating institutional frameworks that show the type of behavior you want to kids, you start showing it to adults, they're going to take that back to their classroom. Why wouldn't they? Because they're going to feel like, oh, my God, I felt seen. I felt heard. i got to try this with the kids. Even the dumbest fucking teacher who doesn't know anything is going to be like, oh, my God, I just found something out. And teachers, dime, dollars to donuts, when they actually find something that works, even the most jaded teacher is like, i got to do that. Our number one stalwart defense is that won't work. Oh my God, that's not going to work. And the reason why we, we're, we're so dismissive is because no one has shown it working with us. Mm -hmm. So like second step, why don't you do just play the video? That's not going to work. Of course it's not going to. But if you actually do something that allows kids to like, you, you, that, that allows teachers to feel validated, they'll take that into their classroom. I could never understand if an administrator wants a culture where kids are seen and heard and included and valued, why wouldn't you start that culture with your teachers? Right? Like you, you can do that. But that's where, again, that's where administrators are not being heard, I'm sure. I'm going to give them a sympathetic vent. However, they have control, they have agency, and they have autonomy that can actually change things. On some level, they choose not to. That's really true. How, with these emotional demand, I think after the mental demand of teaching, I think next is like the emotional drain. So how do you do effective emotional work with kids or be mm -hmm. that for, 
for others without kind mm. of feeling like you're a sponge for all of the hurt mm. and anger that comes along with it. Great question. Great question, friend. Um, the first thing that you have to do is, in my opinion, and again, all of this is, you know, whatever, take, take it with a salt, like, because it's coming from, you know, it's coming from me. So, you know, whatever. Um, but the first thing you have to do is you got to, you got to recognize, claim your baggage. You got it. It starts before you can, you know, and we've heard this so It's true. And just because something is a cliche doesn't make it not true. But we've heard you can't be in a relationship with someone unless you're in a decent relationship with you. And that is absolutely right. Because if you can't expect someone to fix, fix you if you are not willing to look at what is inside you that needs to be fixed, right? Well, um, I think we need to talk about how it's an ongoing process too. Like I think I'll yeah. you know, dealt with all my shit and then it'll come back up. It's like, oh, this again. I thought this uh, no. There, there is, that's, that's part of the checking baggage. That's part of the acknowledgement of the baggage. There is no touchdown dance. The scoreboard, the clock never hits zero. The game is never over. You think that you're out of the woods and then something comes and hits you. And, and that's fine. But now what you have to do is that, that's the first thing. So you have to work on, and I would say teaching is so demanding because we see young people in so many vulnerable positions that we can't help but empathize with when we were in such a vulnerable position. So you, you might not be thinking about some repressed memory from fourth grade, but it's coming back because you're going to see some kid in the same position and your natural inclination is going to be triggered. You're not intending it, but it's going to happen. So the first thing that you have to do, I think, is on the if you are committed to the emotional aspect, that emotional healing, that idea that if we approach this from an emotionally connective tissue, there can be great. If you're willing to do that, then you have to look at yourself first. You have to be willing to put all of your ugliness, your discomfort, and remember, and you, you've identified the paradigm really well. Accept the need for help and you're looked at as deformed. Don't accept the need for help. You're looked at as strong, but you're falling apart inside. Cry for help, you'll be ignored. Don't cry for help, you're ignoring yourself. So that's the polarity that, and that's the paradox. It's a polarity, it's a paradox. It is, you know, it's an enigma wrapped in a, wrapped in a vest. That's exactly what the problem is. So the first, so part of unche- part of checking your baggage and 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 claiming it and unpacking and untangling it is accepting the fact that the system is designed for people to not be emotionally connected, and it is designed to run through people. It is a machine. It is a beast, and it has been. It has become that. It cannot be stopped. We we just have to be. Right now, at this stage in the game, we do not have the resources or the allies to fix the structural problem. So, like, it's there. I'm not happy with it, but it has been created for centuries. Since the first classroom in Lowell, Massachusetts, it has been created. 
So we have to accept that. And I, I'm fully cognizant that that flies in the face of like, well, then you're just an apologist for uh, injustice. You are allowing it. You have to start off, I believe, at that level. You have to openly accept this is what I'm up against. You know, and, and you can go ahead and we've talked about this. You can go ahead and shoot the arrow and aim really high, but you're not going to be successful. In fact, the institution will want you to do that because that arrow is going to bounce right off them and you will run out of arrows. And eventually you will tire and they will get rid of you. So, you know, I'm not, a, I'm not in any way justifying or being an apologist for the systemic silencing of teacher voice that has happened. But we have to admit that that is what the system does. Mm -hmm. Right. So that's the first thing. And when we do that, we have to recognize that at different points in our career, our voice was probably silenced. Now, maybe it was silenced because we were a woman. Maybe it was silenced because we were a person of color. Maybe it was silenced because we were not heteronormative uh, in a setting that only embraces straight people. I don't know. Maybe it was maybe it was silenced because we're thinking people in a non-thinking setting. Who knows? I don't know. But we have to be open about, okay, where have I seen my own voice get silent? So you can kind of see, and again, that's where this journal comes in really handy, right? Because this is your opportunity to put everything out there, right? Uh, let's go with your, don't, I'm not going to cry, I'm not going to cry, I'm not going to cry. Or um, hearing so-and-so is a crier, so-and-so is a complainer. Right, because whenever we whenever we see that, even though it's not us, whenever we see that, we know that our voice is being taken away. Well, I can't do that because that's how I'm going to be perceived. So you have to do a lot of a lot of work on, and and it's difficult four years into the profession if you've been doing this in terms of aid and teaching work, maybe six years or whatever. But you're going to have to unpack a lot, right? Because the first step is unpacking that and leaving no suitcase tidied up. You're still gonna deal with it. Like let's just, even though you unpack and untangle, you may fold the clothes nicely, you're still gonna have messes, but, but at least you know them and you won't get blindsided by them. Mm -hmm. Once that's done, and again, we say done in a relative sense because it's never really done, but you get to a point where you're comfortable with you're comfortable with the marginalization that you have experienced. You're comfortable with the silencing that's happened. Okay. Like you, you can't go back and fix it. The principal that did it to you, they've moved on. The director that did it to you, they're no longer there. Some of them have, you know, some of them have moved on to other settings. Some of them have moved to the great, to the great classroom in the sky, whatever. It's over, right? You just know that. <laughs> um, but you now understand that the second step has to now be done. What could have helped you, right, to not have your voice maligned so much? And normally, the answer to that is it would have been nice to have been heard. It would have been nice to have been heard in a non-judgmental setting without fixing anything, just giving my voice the ability to get sea legs under it and to stretch. That's it. And when you do that, when you are when you're able to come to that, you start recognizing who can I serve this to? Right? Because 
Right? And I'm going to go there. If I've been raped, I can go internal and I can say, well, it doesn't matter. But on some level, if I work through the trauma that was there, I don't want someone else to have to go through what I did. Like, that sucks. I don't want to have, I know how shitty it was when I had to, you know, when I had to sit at my desk in that one room hovel of a condo and start typing a letter of resignation. I know how bad I felt. I know the, the, the stigma that was attached to it, the personal stench of failure that I had. I also know that I don't want someone else to have to go through that. And it would have been really nice as I was sitting at my, my word processor and typing, it would have been really nice to have someone pick up the phone or knock on the door and say, what happened to this? Tell me a story about what happened to this. Would have been nice. Would have helped me. And we realized that because, again, right, our first premise was that the system is designed to silence voices. We realized that we're not the only one. We think because teachers have embraced the idea of going into a quiet realm of sadness and desperation. We think this only happens to us. But once you broaden it out and realize, holy shit, that happened to you? Oh my God, that happened to me. Like we start realizing we're both abused. And it helps us on two levels. One, I wasn't the anomaly. I wasn't the fuck up. Right? Because the first, the first reaction of anyone who's abused, why me? Why did I get chosen? What did I do? And it's not an issue of what you did. It is the issue of what someone did to you. So we now realize that I see somebody else being raped. I see the same pattern. And that's when I start stepping out. Hey, um, if, if, you're, if you're ever up to it, I'd really like to hear a story from you about what happened today. If you ever want to talk about it, like, you know, I, I would like to hear that. You might not get buy-in at the first time, full disclosure. But eventually, because the system is very efficient in how it ruins people, you'll get another opportunity and another and another. And eventually, someone is going to break and say, I think I'm ready to communicate. I think I'm ready to talk. Um, I love the movie, The Sixth Sense, mm -hmm. uh, because uh, he sees dead, the little boy sees dead people, mm -hmm. right? And his mother doesn't. And his mother constantly asks, Cole, what's wrong with you? Cole, what's wrong with you? Cole, what's wrong with you? And then at the end of the movie, he says to her, I'm, I think I'm ready to communicate. And she then has to listen. Um, at some point, someone that we reach out to you will say, I'm ready to communicate. And then when you hear their story, you can empathize as a fellow target. But you can't super input. That's where, that's where, because you've already untangled and unpacked your baggage and your trauma. That's the discipline. Because at that moment, you can't like throw yourself in there because you've already done that. You can't use their moment of coming clean to you to air out your own dirty laundry. 
because you've already done that. It's already out there. You carry it with you. Your luggage is yours. You know what they say at the airport? If you see something, if you see baggage that's unattended, you got to call security. You're carrying your luggage with you. That's all you have. You know, I've always said that teachers, the only thing teachers have are the sum store, are the, are the summation of their pain and hurt. They'll always be able to talk to you about that. But that's your pain and your hurt. No matter what, I can listen to you, but I'll never know what it's like to feel like you're losing brain cells. When you felt that one day that at the end of the good morning and it was like 3.30, I'll never know what that's like. But if, if, if we are able to listen, if we've already aired out and unpacked and untangled our own trauma in an effective way, then we are able to hear somebody else's. And they will come to us and say, what do I do? And then you have to say, it's not, you know, it's not up to me to figure out what you should do, but whatever you do have to do, I'm going to be with you every step of the way. And if I can help you, we'll do it together. So now what you've done, right, is you've created a sense of a community, solidarity. And you can now parlay that into, hey, um, I, I, instead of having them, instead of doing what the, what, what at the staff meeting they said, I came up with something. I'm going to try this. Do you want to try it too? Yeah. Not because it was a good idea, although I'm sure it was, because they trust you. Because they've given you something that they don't give to anyone else. They've given you their pain. They trust you. And now because they trust you, you've got, you can scale change out. We talked about it. That's how scale has changed out. Now, in terms of doing this with children, um, there's one easy, there's one easier aspect than with adults. And then there's one harder aspect than with adults. The easier aspect is that you won't, I don't think you'll have to wait very long for them to come clean. Whereas with the adults, there's so many layers of defense that you have to penetrate through. Not so much with the kids. That's true. Right. So tell me a story about how you, about how you were angry today. Oh, that's it. They start. That's the easier part. The harder part. The harder part is that unlike the colleague or unlike the adult, where you're kind of in the same position that you can put yourself out there or you can help them, with the child, it's very, very important to be mindful that you might need to outsource that. Tell me a time when you were really, really angry. Well, you know, I was so angry. I, I, you know, I had this gun at home and I thought about bringing it. And the reason why you have to outsource that is because the adult, for the most part, their brain has already developed. Obviously, right, some brain, you you get what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. But the younger person, they have not developed. And so you can't take on that burden of developing them because that is outside of your realm of expertise. You're actually doing more harm at that point because now they think, oh, I've got somebody on my level, but you're not on their level. Mm -hmm. And they don't know that, but you need to. One of the hardest things when you're working with kids, I think, is you have to listen with a full heart but a quarter of your mind has got to be like, what am I hearing for that I need to outsource? Mm-hmm. Tell me, a t- tell me about a time day when you were really sad. 
Well, that's when I, that's when I, I carried this blade around with me and I just started cutting and I didn't want to, but I had to. Okay. And then, you, so now your conversation is, I hear you. I'm real, like, I can't tell you how shitty that is that you had to go through that. And I'm so sorry, but I, I want to help you. And so let's go down to so-and-so's office. No, 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 no. I just told you, I, I'm going to be with you every step of the way, but like, we need, we need help. Mm-hmm. And you don't say you need help. You say we need help because you need help in dealing with this. <laughs> the child needs help in, 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 a, in understanding it. You need help in dealing with this, right? One of the, and again, the structure doesn't teach us this because the structure is, the, the structure is okay with you, with, with, and, and I, I hate to say this, the structure is okay with you knowing it and trying to fix it and then failing and having them come back at you for it. Why didn't you follow protocol? How could you do this on your own? Because the structure now has a bad guy, you. So the easier part with dealing with children on the emotional front is that they're going to be quite forthcoming. They will tell you everything. Mm-hmm. But the downside is that because they aren't fully developed yet and they're still learning and their brain is malleable and we want to create neurological pathways for health, we have to outsource. Some things we can probably do on our own. I broke up with her today. I feel shitty. Probably can do that on your own. Um, you know, they... They, they, they tagged me uh, in an Instagram post about how much of a loser I am. Probably can, hang, probably can hang that on your own. But with many of our kids, and I do say many because it is with the advent of social media, with the idea of being more inwardly drawn and just scrolling on that damn phone, they are more likely to become so internal that they no longer will, they will not outsource should I do this? They will just do it. I read yesterday about how awesome it'll be if I just brought a gun and just took care of everyone. Mm. I read about how great it was after I cut myself to not have to feel that pain or how awesome it would be if I just wasn't here anymore. They will never say to you, I need help for this. But that's where you have to say, totally cool. All right, so let's take a walk. And I want to I want to introduce you to a friend of mine because I think we're going to need your help. I think we're going to need his help. No, 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 no. I get it. But like, you came to me for help, right? Right? Like, you know, I, I you want you you want to feel? Do you want me to help you or not? You know, and and obviously, when you have a rapport with the kid, you can you know, and they're like, I got to talk to you. You can be open about, look, man, if it's what I think it's going to be, you know, I, you know what I got to do. I got to report, right? You know that. All right. I know. But like if a kid is, if we're talking about how to first establish that emotional construct, we have to develop the idea that it is okay to need help. It is okay to bring people on board. And that in the end, no human being can do well without a community of some sort. And we're trying to get them to see their own issue of emotional connectiveness as a community thing. So really now what you're doing, yeah, 
is, is, hey, you know, um, it's a friend of mine, Mr. Smith. Why don't you tell him what you were, what we were talking about? Or, or is it okay if do you want me to say it or do you want? It? So now what you're doing is you're, you're bringing them on board and now they're sharing it with another person. And then after that, you have an obligation to say to that kid at every single minute of every single day, you know, I'm here for you. You know, I ain't going anywhere. And you have an ethical duty to mean it. You got to mean it emotionally. You got to mean it professionally. You got to mean it spiritually. Like you got to, you got to put yourself, so you can't say, I'm going to be here for you even next year. And then say, I'm going for a type 75. I'm not, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to be here for you in remote learning and then say, well, I, I decided I'm going to get translated. You can't do that anymore. Because if you do that, then you have to take the responsibility that you are part of the system of silencing voice. And if you're cool with that, so be it. But I can't, if you've done everything that we've talked about all the way through, you're not going to be cool with that. You're not, you're just not. Because <laughs> you're going to be like, A, I remember when I was that kid. B, I don't want to be part of this institution anymore that's about silencing voice. Fuck that. And I can't fix the, I can't structurally replace anything but I'm going to do my little part in my little corner of the world, right? The entire area is a shithole, but my little corner is going to be a little bit less of a shithole. And then from that, I'm going to make the next block a little less of a shithole. That's it. And that's where I think that you can, you can scale out a lot of um, this emotional affect thing. And, and, and the other thing that ends up, Kids will start realizing that you are, you are the anomaly. I've been fortunate enough to do this for so long that kids that I don't even teach will find me. Uh, so-and-so said, you're a really good person to talk to. I got a problem. And the first thing, I don't even know who you are, girlfriend. Who are you? Son, I don't even know who you are. Like, you got to give me a name. I don't care if it's your real name, but I don't even know you because I don't teach you. That's because they know. And that means you have to, you know, and again, when we talk about putting out fires, this is a fire that you didn't anticipate. So luckily for you, they're doing their independent activities and moving on because you got to attend to this. So it's not like you're kicking back at your desk reading the newspaper. You, you're, you're putting out one fire because you know there's another fire that's raging out of control. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, that, but, but that's where you can start transforming your view as an educator and infinitely more important, your view as a person. And that's how you become an architect. You become an architect of castles and cathedrals built to student growth and student learning because that's who you are. Not a science, an architect. You're an architect, you're building. And, and every, single, every single moment, you have an opportunity to be an architect. Artist lead, hack follow, you know? And, and, and on, some, on some level, every teacher has a choice. I understand completely, I really do, that the system doesn't make us feel that we have that choice. But every teacher has that choice. You got to choose. Are you going to be a hack or are you going to be an artist? That's it. it, it, it you know, I love in, 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 you know, Mad Men, one of the secretaries, it's a, it's a business of status and masochists 
and you know what you are. <laughs> if you're part of this, if you're a part of the system that silences voice, either you're either you're a party to causing pain and you enjoy it, or you're a party to receiving pain and you enjoy it. If you want to be a part of that system, go right ahead. It's a business of status and masochists, and you know who you are. Or you're going to be like, I, I don't want to play that game. Fuck that. This is another game to play. It's different. <laughs> it's different. Um, and it's not being done. But maybe that's why it might actually, it, I, I, I'm persuaded by it. At this stage in my career, this is where I want to be. I don't know if this is going to be sustainable, but I know two things. One, it brings me closer to the, to the educator and the person that I want to be. Right. And you asked, you asked earlier, you know, where do you find that, that inner, where do you find that? It comes from that. Right. When I come home, was I, was I the teacher today that I wanted to be? Like when I started in this profession, oceans of time ago, was I, was I, did I, did I fulfill that vision today? Did I come closer to it or did I become something I hate? And for me, like, if it's the first, good, we have to continue tomorrow. And if it's the second, we got to change that. So that, this approach helps me in that. The second thing that it does is it really does tie into the idea that you can change the system. And I have always been fascinated with that. I've always been fascinated with how do you create system, real systemic change? How do you change systems and spaces so that more people can be, I've always, and I've always looked at it as, oh, it's a top-down thing. And now I'm at the point where even if, if it might be, but I'm not sure it's sustainable with the top-down, but this is. This is organic, this is authentic, and this is real. And you can scale this out. And it doesn't cost anything. It just costs, it just, the only thing it costs is the comfort in thinking that you know it all. Mm. If you're willing to forego that, that, that false certainty that we seem to be surrounded with, if you're willing to, to, to just punt on that, if you don't want to cling to that, this is, you know, this is, and this is something that like, you know, I've started, I've started to work into my content. Um, I'm, I'm going to be doing more of it next year in terms of designing a course that's about African-American history and then culminating with empathy interviews. Um, I just, it, I, it, 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 and then it's something that I've been able to do just amongst colleagues, you know, um, I, even, even teachers that are just angry. I can go, I've gotten to the point where I'm able to go up to anyone and kids are like, I can't believe you can talk to her. Like, she's such a bitch. How can you do that? I'm like, right. you know, I, and I tell them, just ask her to tell me a story. People will tell you their story. Because if they know that you're not going to screw them over, what benefit is it? They can't game you out. <laughs> so, like, I, I think it becomes extremely, I mean, it's a powerful tool. It's a powerful tool. And the other thing that it does is it finally allows you to have a shield against those authoritarian forces that want to silence voice. What are they going to do? Because what you've done is you've essentially... You put the system on trial and you put them in a no-win position. 
what are they going to reprimand you for? Caring about another human being? Like, I want to, I want to see you write that up. Go ahead. You know, well, we really don't like this being done. And why? Well, it's just not our way. Why? It's awesome. I, I can't tell you the amount of power, you know, I worked, I worked for a real dick for the last eight years. He's going to be leaving next week. Um, Something just and I, I, it is right. And we don't know what's going to come in his place, but um, I enjoyed the last two years of being able to just put him so off kilter because of what I was doing. And I love the fact that like, I never got any validation from him, but I created a little force field that he couldn't penetrate. Even the kids would be like, yeah, he could only stay here for two minutes and he had to leave. It's just too much because I came to represent the antithesis of who he was. And that is an amazing feeling. That isn't, you know, you don't need anything else. At that moment, anywhere in the building, I could always look at him and I could say, I'm looking right now at someone that doesn't share a single shred of values that I believe in. And I'm looking at you as the weak one, not me. I don't need the title. You do. It's awesome. Holy crap. You cannot liberate me. I can only liberate myself. It's, it's a Buddhist idea, but you, you get strength from that. And in a setting where we're trying to find any semblance of strength, it's interesting to see that the strength that we can develop can come from within us. And you can, you can import, you can export that out to other people. And that's how you start building a lasting community. And, and from there, you can start prototyping ideas for change, ideating, or ideating in terms of what change looks like, uh, creating systems and structures that um, represent the community that you would want to be a part of. When you look at your school, and again, not to judge your school negatively, but I'm going to just speak of your school as school in general. Mm-hmm. There are pockets of it that I'm sure you would not want to be a part of that community. Mm-hmm. There's many aspects of it that you'd be like, I don't, I can't believe I work here. I can't believe I have to interact with this. I can't believe that this is the community that I have to reside in. Holy crap. This allows you to create a corner of a community that you yourself would want to be a part of. Because you are a part of it. And we, we don't look at that. That's a very important thing. We have compartmentalized it enough. Oh, this place is a shithole, but I'm just here and I'm not going to be here very long. That's fine. You, you, you know, but, if, but that's not sustainable. True. We, we, what is sustainable, though, is doing the work on ourselves and being willing to share with others what can be done to create a little aspect of our school communities that we ourselves would like to be a part of. That's not a bad thing. And, and, and we might be able to get, it's a way that we can get more bees with honey than vinegar. That's really about it. Can I ask you one more question? Sure. And I almost hate to ask this question because, well, it's about self-care, which is a word that gets thrown around a lot in really obnoxious ways. Completely. And it, like I, as much as I actually love yoga and respect yoga, and I feel better after doing yoga. I have this almost allergic reaction to yoga because it's like the solution that has just been given to like everything. Like I'm getting really burnt out as a teacher. Well, have you tried doing yoga? And some try, yoga try doing yoga. 
Yoga is fixing everything, right? You know, you know it's bad. You, you know it's bad when your staff meetings are about yoga. That that is what they've taken as the one, right? That's what the you know they're looking for the answer, and the answer is you know downward dog. If you do that, apparently everything is solved. So, what's your question? Is there anything that you do for self care? And I'm thinking too as it relates to, and I love the way that you speak in terms of of opening up the ability for people to not be silenced by asking them to share their stories. I think that's incredibly powerful. I know yeah. it's like a highly sensitive person, which I just had recently heard that term and identified with. I can really and like feel other people's emotions really almost like acutely. Like I even physically mm. faint or pass out if I hear about or see yeah. somebody else in pain, even in the movies. Like I will have been known to pass out movie theaters. Right. Absolutely. Is there anything you do for self-care? Because it's amazing that so many kids come up to you well, and tell their stories. Yeah. I don't you know, know how it, you don't crumble under that. Oh, it, it, it hurts. It, I mean, oh my God. No, I'm not going to lie. Um, you know, <laughs> it, I, I think in some cosmic way, I, and it sounds terrible, but I think in some cosmic way, um, I needed remote learning because it gave me three months of not having, or of not being so inundated with so many sad stories. Uh, because you know, I, I there was a there was a time, Rachel, this year in particular, where I was on a streak of like sixty-two straight school days of at least two children crying. Like I just, and I would remember, I remember telling my wife, I just want the day where no one cries. I, just one day. I just want one day without tears. And it's, it's not like I chipped a nail tear. It's like they're getting divorced. Um, they told me I was adopted. Uh, you know, I finally made peace with the fact that he raped me. Like, just fuck. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and it's, and there were points, especially in the last couple of years, where it's just layered on. Like I'm teaching one, two, three, four. I've had rape crisis prevention fifth, suicide hotline six, seventh. I have maybe ten minutes to eat, and then um, I, I've got someone funny, whose parents are divorcing. Right? Like you have to laugh just, because otherwise you just weep. <laughs> it's it's awful, you know. I'm like, and I'm like, dude, and then teach eighth and ninth. I would hear the bell at 3.30 and I'm like, I want to be excited, but I know someone's going to come through that door and say that they outed me as gay. Like, I am just ready. <laughs> um, there are, there are really, I, I, there's a couple of things that I do practice um, that I think are really important. And I can't recommend them for anyone. They're just how I cope. The first thing that I cope or the first way I cope is um, I really don't interact with teachers in my building, period. Right. And 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 I, I inter okay, let me rephrase. I'll interact with them in an empathetic way, but I'm not going to do the 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 bar hopping social. I'm not going to do bowling. I'm not going to do the Christmas party. I'm not going to do uh donuts and breakfast in the morning. I can't be in a setting where adult toxicity is taken away from what I need. And our culture is corroded, it's corrosive, and it's unhealthy. If you buy into it, 
you will end up buying everything that's in it. And I just can't do it. So um, like when they say, you know, um, teachers come on down for staff breakfast, you know, I don't go. Teachers, are we going to, you know, I'll see you at Dave and Buster's. I don't go. The free food is hard for me, but I'm really happy to hear you say that because I've always, and I've talked with one colleague too. It's like when we would eat lunch in the staff lunchroom, we'd always leave feeling worse and our afternoons would be bad. And we're like, why is this? So I felt bad about isolating myself in my room. I felt better when I did. You have to. So that's the first thing that I've actively, like I'll I'll have, and and kids will, I, I surround myself with kids. They'll be in the morning, you know, that room opens up at 7.50 so that I don't have anyone coming in trying to rope me into something. If anyone says, how come you weren't at the break? I got 20 kids. Uh, sorry, I can't do. Even random kids that I just need a place to hang. Go on. You can sit down. That's cool. I got you. Um, you know, I, I, I do eat lunch by myself mostly. Um, I it's, it's a rare occasion. I think the last staff get together I went to was uh, a retirement dinner for, for my mentor, for my colleague, that was it. And that was about six years ago. Like, I just, I do not, I do not interact with the adults outside of my building in a social setting. Because what will end up happening is invariably, no worthy discussion will come out of it, or it will be turned on me. Oh, you just give them A's, you just do this, they, you're the shoulder to cry on. Or, I will embrace that toxicity that will prevent me from working with kids. And again, when I think about, did it, was I today the teacher I wanted to be, or was I farther from that? If I hang with teachers, I will be farther from it. So one self-care I do is a lot of alone time, right? So like at staff meetings, I'll sit way in the corner. I'll sit way in the back. And sometimes administrators will be like, well, you have to be part of the group. and you have to kind of, it depends on how they say it. Mm-hmm. If they say it like, okay, you know, is, could you please join? Okay, fine. But if they say it like in a way as if like, oh, you're a, you're, you're a defect for not being, you have to stand up and you have to stand up and say, I'm not going to do it. Like I, I will be, in, I will be in, I will be present. I will be here. I will do, but I, I, I just have to be on my own. And that's awkward to do because not how work is supposed to be. So that's the first thing. I think the second thing that um, that needs to be done, and this sounds really, this sounds very weird, um, but kids have made me aware of it. I will, if if I'm not with students, I will walk around the building and and I'll just talk to myself. It sounds very fucked up and it sounds like something you would see like homeless people do on like L platform, but kids have noticed like, are you talking to yourself? Yeah. Like I got it. And, 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 and the reason why I do that first, I got to get out of the room, right? Because you, you can't, but I'll walk around the building sometimes in sometimes outside, but I'll talk things out and you will see me like say, that explains so much. Of course, you're going to be like that. Or that's why you've been like that. Now it makes sense. Okay, so uh, like, oh my God, I can't keep them together in a group. Like, I'll just start 
sometimes I'll talk about like what it's my way of getting out all the pain that was unloaded on me. It's not advisable because people will look at you as a freak, but if you, if you already did the first step and you're not hanging with colleagues, maybe this is what you do to like finalize that. <laughs> no one's going to want to hang around you if you're running around the building talking to yourself. Um, and, and they're quite animated discussions. Like, you're just like, oh, obviously, that makes total sense. What is wrong with you? Like, I, and then, then it's really fucked up because then you just start talking to them randomly in the hallway and they're like, what is wrong with you? I'm like, I've been at Julian for 23 years. You tell me. Uh, So, like, there has to be some space where you are allowed to unload everything they dumped on you. Because they dumped on you, but that was a lot that they put on you. So there has to be some level of space where you're doing that. Um, so I talk to myself and, and, and I own it. Um, it's a little bit annoying when you have a group of seventh graders that think they're the shit and they're making fun of you. But it doesn't matter because, like, you're going to get them anyway in eighth grade. And they're probably going to tell you some stuff that you need to, you know, talk to yourself about anyway. But, like. Um, you just own that, right? Because that, that's something that you have to do. Um, and then the last thing that I do for self-care that I that I've really started doing, I think, for the last three years, um, I have to go back, usually at the end of the day, but sometimes it's during the day. I have to ask myself, am I being true to the real or the unreal? Am I pursuing something that's real? And I think you have to, obviously you can write about it, but for me, I have to kind of talk that out. Hmm. So, and again, again, it's a little bit on the talking to yourself thing, but like I have to actively, intentionally ask myself, is this real or unreal? Am I getting upset, right? When, when my principal comes, you know, when my principal does something, is it real or unreal? If it's unreal, meaning it's temporary, it's not lasting, it's trivial, then I've got to let that go. Mm-hmm. If it's real, I need to figure out what's my response going to be. So I need to save my bullet, save my energy for the real. And I have to acknowledge that the unreal exists, but I can't, I can't pander to it. So I, I acknowledge it. I give it its space. I understand that it plays a purpose. But as for me dwelling on it, ain't going to happen. You know, so, you know, I, you know, one teacher, one of the teachers said, I can't believe you know, the, today the class that I was their favorite teacher on team. I'm so excited. Cool. If it's real, I got to take umbrage with that. If it's unreal, I got to let it go. You know, and that's the metric that I use to evaluate as many stressful things as I can. Kid suicide attempt, real. Got to go after that. Hmm. Um, you know, power school grades need to be done in a certain way. Probably unreal. <laughs> you know, and, and so you 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 have to differentiate on that level. Discriminating between the real and the unreal is an important step because it allows you to recognize what you are doing is aligned with your vision because your vision is real. And I think that in everything that we're bombarded with, it all can't be real. 
Oh, true. It all can't be so real. True. Because if it is, we need to leave. Um, it all can't be real. So when you're being bombarded with all this, so like staff meetings. For me, our, our Wednesday morning staff meetings, I always felt bad for my first grade kids because I would come in just, man, and I'd tell them, you're my first grade group, so that means you're going to deal with me Wednesday mornings, and I'm really sorry. I'm going to apologize to you now for all the bad things I'm going to say and do to you. I am so sorry. Um, but believe me, if you were in my staff meeting, you'll know. So you got to differentiate, was it real or unreal? The things that are coming, is this real or unreal? Is this person real or unreal? I think that helps a great deal. I think that's brilliant. And I think it's over time, the more we practice that, the easier it's going to be. Because at first it feels all real. And then when you realize mm -hmm. oh, administration, all that stuff they made such a big deal of doesn't even look at that. So this is unreal. Yep. It seems big, full of sound, full of fury, signifying nothing. Unreal. <laughs> that's so brilliant. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Ferocious Teachers Podcast. Make sure you don't miss an episode or our tools and strategies by signing up for Fit to be Ferocious, a weekly newsletter that highlights our current conversations about education. Sign up at ferociousteachers.com. Get show notes from this episode at ferociousteachers.com slash podcast. Remember, change and transformation start from within. <laughs>